Well, I want you to imagine traveling 634 miles on foot in the winter through the mountains. That's the journey that Martin Luther made in 1510 from Germany to Rome. 634 miles on foot in the wintertime and he had to cross the Alps. That's the journey Luther made along with another monk from the Augustinian order. And they made the journey in little over a month's time to settle some ecclesiastical affairs in Rome. And Luther at the time, he was a young up-and-coming Catholic priest. And getting to see Rome was an exciting privilege and opportunity. At At the time, the Catholic Church was selling indulgences. These indulgences provided a person freedom from the temporary punishment for sin. So without doing confession or penance, you could earn or buy forgiveness and escape some time in purgatory. Some indulgences could be outright bought, but in Rome, you could earn indulgences. Rome had all these holy places, and attached to each holy place was some indulgence. So show up at a shrine, say a prayer, take communion, go through a mass, and you would earn the indulgence attached to that place. Priests who pilgrimaged to Rome could even obtain indulgences for their family. And they had the right to say Mass at a shrine, which would earn them some additional merit. Luther was very excited by this. His goal was to visit as many places as possible in Rome and to gain all the indulgences he could for himself and his family. As Luther entered Rome, he visited countless holy places, including the seven major churches, But his experience was not like he expected. He expected to find Rome a city of prayer and almsgiving and holiness and reverence. But instead he found Rome to be a hotbed of greed and hypocrisy, sexual immorality, irreverence, deception, mockery, revelry and shamelessness. And that's just describing the clergy. The Catholic priesthood at the time was completely and morally bankrupt. As Luther visited one shrine to say Mass... The priest overseeing the visitors told him, pasa, pasa, which means in Latin, hurry up, you know, get a move on. There's a long line of priests waiting to say mass. And the priest in charge was trying to hurry things along and speed this up. And Luther was outraged at their irreverence toward the mass. At another place, Luther stood in front of an altar to say mass. And next to him were other priests saying mass as well, trying to earn their indulgence. By the time Luther made it through one mass, The other priests had made it through six or seven. And they said to him as they left, mockingly, hurry up and send the son back to his mother, referring to Jesus and Mother Mary. Later, Luther found himself eating with a group of priests, and they were speaking freely, and they expressed their disbelief in the mysteries of the church, and they were laughing at the superstition of the people. They boasted in their cleverness in fooling the people who were just ignorant. During communion, the the priest was supposed to say in Latin the phrase, this is my body, referring to the bread. But instead, they said the phrase in Latin, panis es et panis manibus, meaning bread you are and bread you shall remain. Now the people, they didn't know Latin. So as the priest said this mocking phrase and elevated the bread, the people bowed down and they worshipped. None the wiser. And the priest found great delight in mocking the ignorance of the people. Hearing all this greatly pained Luther. These priests were just playing a part in 
public, they appeared very devout and uh, devout. But in private, they held in contempt the rites they performed, and they mocked the people who followed them. And Luther thought, if the common priests were this bad, how much worse were things higher up? And later he said, if there was a hell on earth, Rome was built over it. And disillusioned, Luther returned to Germany with the seeds of the Reformation now sown. And certainly the Roman church and its clergy needed reform. The Catholic priesthood at the time was entirely corrupt. The clergy was sexually immoral. Celibacy began being taught in the 4th century, but it wasn't observed. And more than that, priests openly had concubines. The prostitution district in Rome was frequented by them. And some even considered themselves virtuous because they kept only to women. Drunkenness was included in their immorality. And the clergy also abused their power. They were guilty of pluralism, which is holding more than one office office at once, which was forbidden, but you could get around that for a price. They were guilty of absenteeism, which was failing to reside in the parish they were supposed to be over. So many priests, they never set foot in their parish, but they were sure to collect the tax money. And they were guilty of simony, which is using money to buy office. And this was really motivated by greed, because these offices, they came with a hefty income. The church taxes were, were very high, and the priests were living like, like princes. And sadly, the people at the time, nevertheless, they bought into it. They bought into the whole system. They were deeply religious. They were motivated by fear and salvation after death, even the salvation of their dead loved ones. And so they, they attended the holy festivals. They bought the indulgences. They made pilgrimages to Rome. The people, they were caught hook, line, and sinker. And that's because unbeknownst to them, they were caught under the sway of false teachers. What amazes me about this is not the fact that this all happened 500 years ago, but rather that this all happened 1,500 years after Peter wrote Second Peter. And even 1,500 years later, his description of false teachers was still hitting the nail right on the head. That's because false teachers don't change and God's word doesn't change. As Peter knew false teachers would keep coming, so did God. And God inspired him to write a truly timeless warning to the church. And this warning has stood true all throughout church history, be it 1,500 years later in the Reformation, even now today, 2,000 years later. Amazingly, God's timeless word still applies and still enables the church to identify and reject false teachers. For several weeks now, we've been laboring through Second Peter chapter 2. You can turn there in your Bibles if you have them with you. Where Peter both describes and decries false teachers. And Peter knows who they are. He knows what they do. He wants you to know as well. He has spent some time already telling of their certain judgment, the doom that is awaiting them, He's trying to encourage the church that evil will not win in the end. But his primary function has been warning. He's letting you know what what to look for. What what are the red flags? What are the sure signs that you're dealing with a false teacher? This expose began in verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2, where he gave this initial sketch of the false teacher. Now he's near the end. And he revisits this sketch and he takes us deeper with some of the more prominent characteristics of the false teachers. 
Last week we saw two notable ones. They are revilers, which means they have irreverent speech, and they are revelers, which means they have immoral behavior. And now approaching the end of chapter 2. Before he finishes, he, he builds on his initial sketch of false teachers once again. This time focusing on perhaps their two most notable characteristics. And that would be greed and sexual morality. If there was ever anything permanently printed on a false teacher's calling card, it would be these two things, greed and sexual morality. From the early church to the medieval church to today, this hasn't changed. And the church would do well to acquaint itself with these major markers of false teachers. And that's the focus of our passage today. We're continuing on, Second Peter chapter 2 now. This whole chapter, it's like a tidal wave of information against false teaching. He really gives us more than we can handle at once. That's why we've been breaking it down week by week, section by section. Today we're only going to bite off verses 14 through 18, picking up where we left off last time. And like I was, our goal is just to make our way verse by verse and understanding this depiction of false teachers. But we really want to focus on, on the highlights. And there are two highlights in particular. So we're continuing with the same trend, the same uh, focus. And we're going to find here from our passage, again, two general characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. Two, two more general characteristics of false teachers so that you can avoid their destruction. And we're picking things up. Number one, they are greedy. Now, straightforward from the text, number one, they are greedy. Picking things up from last time and look in the middle of verse 14. He says, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray, having followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he received a rebuke for his own transgression. For a mute donkey, speaking with the voice of a man, restrained the madness of the prophet. So he's carrying on with this diatribe against false teachers, and we're picking things back up. We find first their Greed. He doesn't just call them greedy, notice. He says they have hearts trained in greed. And the word trained in the Greek is gymnazo. So where do we get gymnasium from? The word was used of the ancient athletes training for the games. And that training required great mental and physical discipline and practice. These false teachers are pictured as applying this discipline and practice to greed. Greed or covetousness is that never-ending desire for more. There's more stuff, more influence, more power, and most often, more money. The greed in these false teachers is like an unbridled horse. just cannot be tamed. It goes where it wants. There's no stopping it. But you might think in America today, wait a second, is greed really so bad? In capitalistic America, it doesn't seem so bad. I mean, isn't the new phrase today anyway, greed is good? Well, what's really so wrong with, with wanting more money? I mean, who doesn't want more money? You do, right? But the sin of greed or, or covetousness is more than just wanting a raise at work or some extra cash, although that may be indicative. But covetousness, as expressed in the 10th Tenth Commandment, for example, it was all about desiring forbidden things. 
your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's property. It's where you want something that you shouldn't have, and you want it more than you want to honor God. You pair that with greed, which is just, you just want more of it, anything, more of, of stuff. And this is a fundamental display of a lack of trust in God and a lack of contentment with what God has given you. There's a few ways to tell if you're greedy. You think about what you want in life. And will you sin to get it? Will you sin because you don't get it? Or once you get it, will you sin to keep from losing it? If so, you're greedy. Uh, deeper than this, though, at the, at the heart level, it's about what you love, what you serve. I mean, do you love money? Do you serve self? Is wealth and prosperity your desire above all else? That's greed. That is wrong. It amounts to idolatry. For you are worshiping yourself and your desires, not God, not his desires. Colossians 3, 5 Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. It's like Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart is. And when people who are given over to greed, their hearts, their, their hearts aren't with God. Their hearts are with the world, the things of the world. And this is idolatry. This just drives home this first phrase describing the false teachers. that They're not just greedy. He says their hearts are trained in it. They're trained in greed. False worship of stuff and self has taken over their heart like a weed-infested yard. Of course, this is no surprise to us. I mentioned how God's word through Peter on false teachers. It's just proven itself true century after century after century. The 21st century, there's no exception. There are so many examples of greedy false teachers today. It literally is not funny. They're everywhere. And sadly, America, with its prosperity as a nation, has given rise to prosperity-driven false teachers. America has become a breeding ground for People devoid of the gospel, having hearts trained in greed. They, they live for stuff. And they preach all about money and the acquisition of more. I think the biggest seedbed of false teaching in this regard would have to be TBN. You all know. Channel 12, what is it? I don't know. Trinity Broadcasting Network. And it's Parade of Charlatans. TBN is worth about a billion dollars. That's how much it's worth. And they make annually about $200 million each year. But yet their, their channel is a constant 24-7 fundraising drive. Like always. They could operate without doing another fundraiser for decades. But greed keeps them going. All of their celebrity preachers constantly promise God will give you health and wealth and prosperity if you give them money first. It's called the seed faith plan. If you just plant a seed, you need to plant a seed by faith and, and God will bless that seed and reward you with riches. And, and how do you plant a seed? Well, you, you send them the largest check you can. That's how you plant a seed. And God will miraculously bless you with riches. 
Just a couple of months ago, a Texas megachurch pastor asked his congregation for help to finance an upgrade to his helicopter. His aviation department, and yes, his church has an aviation department, notified him that if they upgraded the blades on their helicopter, they would save the church $50,000. So this pastor, I.V. Hillard is his name, sent a newsletter to his friends in Jesus telling them that if they were to sow a $52 transportation seed, they would receive a breakthrough favor in either 52 days or 52 weeks. In the opening paragraph, he asked, quote, Does your car need repair? Or total replacement? Do you have a dream vehicle or luxury automobile you long to purchase? End quote. It's notice, by the way, notice how he's appealing to the covetousness in others. He then said, or rather God then supposedly told him, if people would give to this need, that God would bless them with his favor and wisdom upon them. I mean, doesn't it just blow your minds that people fall for this? Completely false teaching? And we'll come back to that thought. But meanwhile, who's getting rich in this equation? It's the televangelists, the prosperity preachers. While the people they prey on, what are they left with? Empty promises, empty bank accounts. Meanwhile, these preachers live lives of opulence as multimillionaires. But they never stop asking for more. In greed, they just never stop asking for more. One example. And Joyce Meyer She used to make $900,000 a year and her husband $450,000 a year. Then she reduced it to a modest $250,000 a year, but not so fast. At the same time, she started a for-profit company that would receive all of the income, all of the royalties from her books. That money used to go to ministry. Now it goes to her. It's like taking a pay cut from one boss, but then a bigger raise from another boss. Meanwhile, her ministry provides her with a parsonage, but they don't let you know that her parsonage just happens to be a 10,000 square foot, eight car garage, $2 million estate. That's $2 million in Missouri, by the way, which goes a lot further than like LA. This is not to mention her $500,000 vacation home, $100,000 boat. It just goes on. I could literally go on for a long time about her, others. It just, it just goes on. But in the, end of the, end of, in the end of the day, these false teachers of our day, they actually resemble Tetzel of Luther's day. Johann Tetzel was a German monk, a Catholic monk, who more than any other championed the selling of indulgences. He said, buy these indulgences and I offer you forgiveness. You will be forgiven. You escape purgatory. His famous slogan, I think, was, as soon as the coin and the coffer rings, another soul from Purgatory Springs. He's offered the promise, forgiveness for money. Isn't that precisely what prosperity preachers do today? They have false promises in exchange for money. It's the same thing. This is a false promise in exchange for money. Back then, it was the promise of freedom from purgatory, some forgiveness. Now it's the promise of of riches. It's the same thing, though. False promise in exchange for money. But those on TBN and the like, they're actually worse because their reach is far more widespread. They take advantage of far more people. Here in 2 Peter, all this goes to say that if you see greed in a church leader, 
you have the clearest red flag that there is. Just watch out. Watch out. If the preachers you listen to online, you watch on TV, even us here, whoever, it doesn't matter, be discerning of all things. You need to ask, what is their view of money? What do they use money for? Do they love money? Is their preaching aimed at getting more money? Does money seem to be the focus of their ministry? You need to ask these questions. Look for greed. And if you find it, just run away. Turn away. At the same time, I think it's appropriate to turn this warning against false teachers on ourselves. You may not be a false teacher. I certainly hope not. But do you nonetheless harbor some greed in your own heart? Are you in love with money or stuff? Is your heart constantly set on getting more? Is having more the next thing? A lack of contentment, a love for stuff are sure signs that you struggle with greed. So examine your own heart even. Make sure that you are not training your own heart in greed. Like Jesus said in Luke 12, verse 15, Beware and be on guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Or Hebrews chapter 13, verse 5. Make sure that your character is free from the love of money. Being content with what you have. For Jesus himself has said, I will never desert you, nor will I ever forsake you. Jesus will never desert or forsake those who hope in him. However, those who hope in riches, they will be deserted. Their riches will forsake them. Your riches won't carry you through to the next life, nor greet you there. It's for this reason that Jesus often decries those who are rich. He speaks against those who hope in their riches. Not that being rich is bad in itself. There are many wealthy saints. But those who hope in their riches, he says, look, those riches that you hope in, they're not a blessing for you. They're a curse. And that's similarly what Peter says as we continue on in verse 14. He says these false teachers who are trained in greed, they're also accursed children. Literally children of a curse. He's not cursing them himself. He's, he's observing the curse of God that is upon them, that has been brought upon themselves by their own sin and idolatry and greed. What makes them cursed, what makes anyone cursed, comes at the beginning of verse 15. Look there. Speaking of them, forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. Over and over again in Scripture, we see this metaphor of two ways, two paths, the right way and the wrong way. The, the, the straight path and the crooked path. And when a person finds himself wandering off the path of God, where are they? They're lost. They're, they're lost. That's what we once were. That's what all unbelievers currently are. And that's what false teachers are the most. They're lost. I have a vivid early memory from a family trip to Vermont, which is where my dad was born and raised. I must have been 10 or younger, and I remember we rented four mountain bikes, and we just went biking through the woods. Very picturesque. It was a great time. 
But there were a lot of intersecting paths. They were just all over. And soon it became pretty clear we were lost. Somewhere along the road, we had wandered from the right path. We just got onto some different path, and we didn't know where we were. And then it started to rain. And you know when it starts to rain and you get wet? It's, at first, it's just annoying. But then when you get soaked, you're like, well, what am I going to do now? You might as well embrace it. So that's what we did. We were soaked. We were biking through the woods. We had no idea where we were going. Eventually, we made our way back to the hotel that we were staying at. And strangely, we have a fond family memory out of it. But many people who leave the path of God, they don't find their way back. And many people who leave the path of God, they don't want to find their way back. They have forsaken the right way on purpose. And that's what these false teachers did. Remember, they knew the truth. They were apparently once professing Christians. They claimed to know Christ. They claimed to know the gospel. But at some point, they turned against the truth. As the path of discipleship proved incompatible with their sinful desires, they turned aside. Following after their lusts was more important than following after this Jesus guy. So they left. They went back. And in so doing, they revealed their heart's true colors. Yet now the path they're on, well, it's full of of temporary pleasures. It's aligned with the pleasures of the world. But now it heads to hell. Like Jesus himself said, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. I've told this story before, but I'll relate it again because it's so relevant. It's such a perfect fit here as an illustration. During my freshman year of college, I became a Christian. At the same time, I had a friend who during his freshman year of college, he left Christianity. And so I talked to him. He knew the truth. He knew the gospel. But he just, he really wanted the pleasures of the world. You know, the party scene. He said he wasn't getting out of Christianity what he wanted. He wasn't satisfied. He wasn't happy. He just really wanted to experience the, the pleasures of the world because he knew that would make him happy. He knew better. He knew this was wrong. But he forsook the right way, deliberately choosing instead to follow after his pleasures. And this is precisely what these false teachers did. And Peter, he has his own example. Now in verse 15, Peter gives his own example. And going astray, verse 15, false teachers follow the way of, what does he say? Balaam. Now that's not a good road to be on. You don't want to be associated with that path, the way of Balaam. But Balaam proves to be the perfect archetype of false teachers, false prophets. Remember the story of Balaam in the Old Testament? If you've been with us on Wednesday nights a couple months ago, we made it through that, numbers. The Israelites, they're in the wilderness, and they're nearing the time of the conquest. So you have this horde of two million Jews in the wilderness. They're, they're marching toward the promised land for the conquest. And on their way there, they, they plow through these two huge armies. And these victories strike fear in all the surrounding kings, including Balak, 
the king of Moab. And Balak, he thought they were next. He thought they were going to get wiped out by these Israelites. And he knew they didn't stand a chance. Numbers 22.4 says that he feared Israel would lick them up like an ox licks up the grass of the field. So Balak sent messengers to whom? To Balaam, son of Beor, who was a prophet for hire. Balaam had this reputation. Uh, Those whom he blessed were blessed. And those whom he cursed were cursed for a price, for the right price. He would do this. So Balak sends Balaam the promise of riches if he would just curse Israel. It's, it's like his Hail Mary passes. He has no other choice, nothing left. He's putting his hope in Balaam and this prophet to curse Israel. At first, Balaam leads them to believe that no, there's no way he's going to do this. Money doesn't matter. He's not interested in the riches. He's not going to curse Israel. Because they're blessed by God. But he ends up going with them. He ends up going with them anyway. Although God strongly warns him not to speak any cursing. Still though, greed was in Balaam's heart. He strongly desired that wealth. He's pictured as being blinded by greed. Peter calls this madness. Not talking about insanity. It's just the blinding nature of sin. Greed clouded his judgment. God had warned him not to curse Israel. So really, there's no point for Balaam to go. There's no reason for him to go to Israel with Balak's messengers. But he went anyway. Why did he go? Because he knew that there's just going to be some way. He would find some way to get that money. This huge king's reward. But God restrained him. En route to Israel's encampment, God sends an angel to threaten the life of Balaam, even kill him if he does not give up this intent in his heart to curse Israel. Amazingly, though, Balaam's donkey is first given eyes to see this destroying angel who stands in the way, and then the donkey is given a mouth to speak and warn Balaam of the danger. And the irony is everywhere. Right, Balaam, who's supposedly this great seer, can't even discern the threat to his own life right before him, while this dumb beast knows better. It must be God's sense of humor. Either way, God asserts his sovereignty over Balaam. He will only speak what God tells him to speak, and he will bless them. In fact, that's what Balaam ended up doing. He was forced to bless, not curse Israel. The story doesn't end there. For Balaam, he he loved money so much, he just had to find another way to get it. And so he thought to himself, if I can't curse Israel verbally to get the money, is there some other way I can curse them? And he found it. Morally. Morally. During this time, Numbers 25 records a great sin amongst the men of Israel where they played the harlot with the women of Moab. And they eventually sacrificed to their gods. Basically, the women of Moab mingled with the men of Israel and through seduction lured them even into false worship. And this was really one of the worst, most forbidden things for the Israelites to do. 
But this was not an accident. This was no accident. This was a well-crafted infiltration led by none other than Balaam. Numbers 31 verse 16 records that it was Balaam's counsel that led these women to lead Israel astray. And morally, through this spiritual corruption, he ended up cursing Israel. And he got that reward. Because of this, God judged 24,000 Israelites who sinned in this way. He judged the adulterous women, and he judged Balaam, who died by the sword. Didn't get to see that reward in the end. The wages of unrighteousness came back on him. And so it is with the false prophets and the false teachers like Balaam down through the ages. They're driven by, by that gold, that reward. And it drives them even to deny God's will, God's word, God's way, God himself. False teachers, like Balaam if he could, they'll say anything for money. They will say anything for, for money. They will promise anything for money. Isn't that what we see today? Men and women resort to these false words, false promises for money. And Peter actually exposes this now in verse 17. Look at the next verse, verse 17. He says of them, These are springs without water and mists driven by a storm for whom the black darkness has been reserved. Just imagine you're driving through a desert road. You're on a back road. Your car breaks down. You're forced to walk. You have no water. It's been a day. You feel like you're dying of thirst. But finally, you see a well. And so you run to it with your last ounce of energy. You look down into the well. It's filled with sand. That's, that's like the false teacher's words. That this great hope, great expectation, no delivery. It just doesn't deliver on what it promised. The same goes for these mists driven by a storm. In the Middle East, water was the most precious commodity. And in a year of drought, nothing is more important than rain. So just imagine, it's, it's been a drought, you're just begging for rain. You want rain like nothing else. And then one day you finally see it on the horizon, that dark gray cloud. It's a rain cloud. It's coming your way. And so you're so excited, you think the rain is finally going to come. As it gets closer and closer, it's over you. And then it just dissipates. It just fizzles away into a little mist. No rain, no relief, no water. They do not deliver on what they promise. It's like the words of these false teachers. Great hope, great expectations, great promises. It doesn't deliver. There's nothing there. And what a contrast to to Jesus. He speaks the truth. His words give life. Jesus provides true satisfaction, true relief, true hope. The false teachers, their words do not. For their deception, their greed, among other things, they will be judged. He says, for them is reserved the black darkness. Believers have a reservation in heaven, in the light, for God is light. But unbelievers have a reservation in the darkness, a reference to hell, they will suffer eternal separation from God's goodness and glory forever. This is a place of outer darkness. As Christ himself said, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. No one has to go there 
But for any who turn from the way, for any who are trained in greed, for any who reject the fountain of living water, Christ, this is where they end up. Instead, turn to Christ. Yourself, turn to Christ that you may enjoy forever the water and the light and turn away from all those who teach otherwise. Especially, turn away from the greedy. That is the first general characteristic of false teachers from our passage. They are greedy. Secondly now, the second of two, they are sexually immoral. They're greedy. And secondly, secondly now, they are sexually immoral. Verse 18. For speaking out, arrogant words of vanity, they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape from the ones who live in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves of corruption. 4 verse 18 says, For speaking out arrogant words of vanity. That's what they do. They speak out arrogant words of vanity. Word translated arrogant literally means swollen or overgrown. It's kind of like a puffer fish. I mean, really, they're not that big. But when they sense danger, you know, they, they puff up to the size of a beach ball. But there's nothing there. There's nothing inside. It's just water. And that's like the words of these heretics, that they're swollen beyond normal size, that they're puffed up. Hence the translation arrogant or boastful. It's just their words promise more than they can deliver on. They appear to say more than they really do. False teachers today usually have the least theological training, but they claim to possess the most wisdom and insight and knowledge. Through great verbosity, skillful rhetoric, they convince people into thinking they actually know what they're talking about. They dazzle people with their speech and they lead them to believe that they actually possess these deep spiritual insights. And to the undiscerning, they don't know better. In reality, though, they cannot even see the most basic truths. It's like a blind person trying to describe the sunset to another blind person. He doesn't know, but he's talking a big talk. Again, like the puffer fish, these puffed up, arrogant words of vanity... They have no substance. They're, they're void of substance, of meaning. So he calls them arrogant words of vanity. There's just nothing there. There's nothing behind them. No truth, no meaning, no purpose. They're just empty, empty words. And this makes me think of none other than, than Joel Osteen. Right? Were you thinking of him? Preacher of the largest church in America. Largest church in America and therefore almost the entire world. He has no biblical training or experience whatsoever, but he felt called to the ministry. Side note, would you go to a surgeon who felt called to practice medicine but never went to medical school? Anyway, after listening to interviews, hearing his sermons, I've even read his book, it's just so clear he has no idea what the Bible says. His messages are uplifting. They make you feel good, and that's all that matters. It doesn't really matter what the Bible really says. Don't offend people. Make them feel comfortable. That's what matters. 
But these are just puffed up words with no substance, arrogant words of vanity. Now, I'll give you a perfect example. Back in 2005, Larry King questioned Osteen on the salvation of Jews, Muslims, other people who deny Christ. So aren't these people going to hell? I mean, if you reject Christ, aren't they wrong? Doesn't that make them wrong? That's what Larry King asked him. Let me read for you his response. This is all a quote. Quote, Well, I don't know if I believe they're wrong. I believe here's what the Bible teaches, and, and from the Christian faith, this is what I believe. But I just think that only God will judge a person's heart. I don't know all about their religion, but I know they love God, and I don't know. I've seen their sincerity, so I don't know. I know for me, and what the Bible teaches, I want to have a relationship with Jesus. End quote. It's like, what? What what did he just say? No, really. Like, what did he just say? I can't tell. He just said, I don't know, a bunch. Did he say anything of substance other than basically denying the exclusivity of Jesus as Savior by omission? This is coming from the biggest, most influential preacher in America today. But like all false teachers, their words, they lack substance. Their words lack scripture. Their words lack power because they don't preach the word. Really? Remember 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2? Just listen. Well, what's the commission for all ministers, all preachers? Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and careful instruction. Verse 3, 4. The time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside toward myths. Isn't that prophetic? Isn't that exactly what's happened all throughout the ages? What you hear from false teachers is mostly hot air. But you still have to be careful because hot air can burn you. It still can be dangerous. As Peter continues, through their puffed up words, what do they do? They entice. We saw this word back in verse 14. False teachers are like fishermen and that they're fishing for people to prey on. And their pulpits give them a large sea to fish from and they cast it out. They cast, they cast the net wide. They cast the net far And they know they're not going to catch everyone. They don't need to. They just need a few to feed them, keep them going. And what is their bait? He says they entice by fleshly desires, by sensuality. And this gets us to really that second major characteristic of false teachers, their sexual immorality. It's not the first time we've seen this, nor the last. And I'll say again, if there are any two marks permanently printed on a false teacher's calling card. It's greed, and now secondly, it's sexual immorality. False teachers themselves, a slave of their appetites, appeal to the fleshly desires in others. These desires, they aren't always sexual. It's just, you know, what do people want? What does their flesh desire? And they want to cater to that. They want to give them that. The message is not change in accordance to God's will. Rather, God accepts you just the way you are. You don't need to change. Your desires aren't bad. 
I mean, going back to the prosperity preachers, how do they hook people? They themselves are enslaved to their fallen desires, and they just appeal to the fallen desires in others. I mean, just think, who's the person who actually sends them money? Who does that? It's the person who themselves, they really want that Mercedes or that mansion, that boat. They they just want it. And so the false teachers, when they dangle that fleshly desire as bait in front of them, easy prey. It's easy. Oftentimes, though, the bait is sexual. A special breed of false teachers is marked by sensuality, and they bring their sexual morality into the church. Now, I don't know how many of these same false teachers, prosperity preachers, have been exposed for sexual immorality. The, the list goes on. This word for sensuality in verse 18 is the same word introduced way back in verse 2 regarding these false teachers where we learn that many will follow their sensuality. This speaking of sexual immoralities of various kinds where they pursue pleasures outside of God's design for intimacy within marriage between a man and a woman. And it appears back then that these false teachers, they had this hyper-spiritual approach to reality. Meaning, you know, all that matters is the salvation of, of your soul, the spiritual stuff. Once you've got that, and what you do with your body, it doesn't matter. I mean, if your soul is saved, you can do anything with your body. It doesn't matter. And Paul actually dealt with a similar false teaching in 1 Corinthians 6, where he had to teach, no, what you do with your body does matter. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Your body will be resurrected. Your body has been purchased by Christ. So yes, what you do with your actual body matters. And today, though, false teachers take a new approach. It's not so much this hyper-spiritual approach to reality as this hyper-subjective approach to reality. Meaning, now, truth is in the eye of the beholder. It's just what you what you make it to be. Who's to say that adultery is wrong or sex outside of marriage or homosexuality? I mean, truth, it's what you make it. This is the world we live in. And now you can find any preacher who has capitulated and will cater to your given fleshly desire. No, it doesn't matter what sin you harbor in your heart. You can find a preacher today who will make you feel comfortable with that sin. Like it's okay. I said before, these false teachers are like fishermen casting wide the net of their puffed up words. But who do they target? Who do they go after? The end of verse 18. Those who barely escape from the ones who live in error. Like most predators, these heretics go go after the weakest in the herd. You remember the parable of the soils, which talks about false converts to Christianity. And the seed sown among the thorns in particular. It represents those who initially they favor the truth. But then what happens? The worries of the world and the deceitfulness of wealth choke out the truth. And they don't bear fruit. They fall away. Now just wonder, for all the people who have fallen away in this manner... How many have fallen away because of the enticement of false teachers? How many false teachers are functioning like the thorns that are doing the choking? And I bet you a lot. 
You have people, you know, their lives just not going the way they planned. They're depressed. They're dissatisfied. And maybe they're coming out of a divorce. Maybe they're trying to get over an addiction. Maybe they're just broke. They're in debt. Just not, they're not happy. They're not satisfied. So they decide to go back to church. I'm going to go back to church. going to make a change in my life for the better. They've got good intentions. They want to better themselves. And in a sense, they make a break from their old ways. Some people like this, though, they just walk through the wrong church doors. And they get caught right in the false teacher's net. They find in the preacher and the congregants just as much worldliness as those outside the church. The gospel is not preached. Greed and sensuality are favored. And such a person has simply left one dark path for another. And this is what Jesus meant when he scolded the Pharisees and he told them that when, when they make a convert, they make him twice as much a son of hell as themselves. That's what he meant. You know, we started off talking about Martin Luther and his break from the Catholic Church. At first, he stayed in the church as a Catholic priest, and he wanted to reform the church from within morally. The moral abuses of the clergy were wrong and unacceptable, like their greed and sexual morality. But soon it became clear that behind their wrong living was wrong teaching. It soon became clear that Luther was dealing with false teachers. That's just what they were. They were false teachers. So Luther and men like him knew that they could no longer stay within the Catholic Church and hope to reform it from inside. They had to break away and just turn away from false teaching through and through. The reformers, they, the reformers, they understood you can't hold hands. You can't play nice with false teaching. Souls are at stake and they work for the enemy. And for several weeks now, we've been going through Second Peter chapter 2. He focuses on the moral abuses of false teachers, the ungodly lives of false teachers, which really exposes them for who they are. Yet behind their ungodly lives is false doctrine as well. Said that in chapter 1, says it again in chapter 3. So look, there, there's no holding hands. There's no playing nice with those who are rightly deemed as heretics. The church must separate from them and remove them from its midst. And this is who we're dealing with even today in the 21st century. So we've heard again and again from Peter that the same message, beware, watch out, be warned. And you guys, you guys have heard this message for weeks now. And I don't think I need to repeat it very often, although it stands to watch out for false teaching. But let me say this now by way of reminder. You know, the era, the era of the Reformation was also an era of holiness for the true church. Those who left, they started what are called the Protestant churches. That's where we are today, Protestant. And why is that? Why were they so holy, these new churches that left the Catholic Church? It's because as the Reformers saw all the abuses in the Catholic Church, they, they said to themselves, how can we break from their false teaching but still live like them? 
How can we turn from what they say, but then follow their greed and immorality? You can't. That would be pointless. So as the gospel was restored to the church, with it came a true God-honoring holiness. And that is a holiness we need to share in. We've been studying false teachers and their characteristics week in, week out. I just want you to pause and ask yourself all these characteristics we've seen throughout all of chapter 2. There's a lot. Just ask yourself, I reject what they say, but am I rejecting how they live? Are any of these characteristics found in me? You need to let your turn from false teachers be complete. Both both what they say, but, but also what they do. Don't live like them. Instead, remember and resolve to follow Christ in earnestness and in holiness as he called you. You're not in the darkness. You're in the light. So walk as children of the light as he called you. If you turn to Christ as your Savior, your Lord, you follow him, that means you have turned away from the path of sin and you have turned toward the path of him. You follow him. He is your Lord, your master, and you go where he goes. You stumble, you get back on the path through repentance. Remember that and walk in the light. We've heard it before. We should remind it again that God wants you to turn from falsehood in all of its forms, both false teaching and false living. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word exposing and protecting us from false teachers. And we want to take seriously this reminder to turn from falsehood in all of its forms, both in false teaching and also even in false living. We learn so much in 2 Peter chapter 2 of what false teachers look like, how they live. And we learn at this church so much to to guard the truth, to be a champion of the truth, to, to turn from error. Help us also, Lord, to turn from moral error, from, from living like them. Keep us free from, from being stains and blemishes ourselves in the church. Lord, we, we all confess we are sinners. We are far from perfect. But give us a, a great desire and a passion to, for holiness. When we stumble into sin, may we repent quickly and get back on the path of following our Savior. And just grant this church to be different to be separate from the world. That those who come in and in our midst, they see us and they say that we are different. And may we reflect Christ to them, to the world, and to you. We do this for your glory, Lord. We want to honor you. We thank you for all that you've done for us, giving us life. Help us to walk in a manner worthy of that life. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.